Oh my god, y'all. I know there has been some silence, but I am pleased to report that I did not die, nor did I lose my ability to walk and clap. I did lose my voice, as you probably can tell, but this time was much more serious. I thought I was going to have to go on America's Got Talent as the U.S. version of Lost Voice Chick. Look up Lost Voice Guy if you are not familiar. Do you know how many doctors and county services want you to call them? And if you can't call, they want you to come in. Do not get me started on getting back into driving or trying to bully my adult children into actually giving their broken mom a ride. If this is your first introduction to the show, you are listening to It's All Relative, the podcast that looks at the intersection of crime and the family. The underlying theme of this show is why. If we can figure out why, hopefully we can stop the more terrible what that plagues us all. I have had surgery and had to take a bit of time off to recover. This show is all me, me, and me. So if I am unable to perform one task or another, everyone has to cool their heels until I am functional again. And if this really is your first introduction to the show, do not start here. We have been talking about the Routier case for three episodes thus far, and you do not want to jump into this thing uninformed. Don't worry. I'll still be here in podcast limbo until you are all caught up. For the rest of you, Henry Mancini will get us all in the proper state of mind, and I will see you on the other side. Just to refresh, very early in the morning, June 6, 1996, on Eagle Drive in Rowlett, Texas, the young Routier family was decimated. By 3 a.m., the six- and five-year-old boys, Damon and Devin, were dead from multiple stab wounds, and their 26-year-old mother, Darley, was losing blood from a large slashing wound to her neck. Not even two weeks later, that same mother was arrested for the boys' murder. And not even a year later, Darley Routier would be convicted in sitting on Texas's notorious death row. This case is normally referred to as the Darley Routier case, but that belies Damon and Devin, who lost their lives. It belies Drake, who was only eight months old at the time of the attack. Some sources say seven, but with his birthday being October 18th, you do the math. He lost his brothers, and he lost his mother and it belies the marriage that was dissolved and the extended family whose life became disordered angst thereafter. In the previous three episodes, we covered the basics of the case and then began talking about the evidence. The Routier case is one of the few in the true crime verse which exists in polarized 
and often volatile camps. Did Darley kill her children and stage the crime scene, or is she an innocent woman on death row? To convict someone of any crime, let alone one in which you will deprive someone of their life, you should have the evidence to prove they did the crime. Our legal, hmm, our justice, nope, don't like either of those words. Our system of law was originally documented as holding the accused as innocent until proven guilty. Now is not the time to debate the intent of the Founding Fathers. Yes, I do kind of mean that term intent facetiously. But let me assure you that the majority of people eligible for jury service think that the accused would not be on trial if there weren't valid evidence against them putting them on trial, especially in the Lone Star State, where they are proud of sentencing someone to death. Just for example, here is a passage from jury selection in Darley's trial, and it is the defense doing the questioning. Question. The statement we ask there is, if a person is accused of capital murder, should she have to prove her innocence? And you put strongly agree. Answer, uh-huh. Witness nodding head affirmatively. Question. Okay. How do you feel about that? Do you still feel that way? Answer, uh-huh. Witness nodding head affirmatively. Question. Tell us a little bit about that. Answer. People are not accused for no reason. I mean, y'all wouldn't have this person up here for no reason, would you? Question. Okay. Would you require the defendant then to prove her innocence? Or would you require a criminal defendant to prove innocence, a person that is charged with capital murder? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. Okay. Answer. They have to prove it. Question. Okay, you would want, I guess, these lawyers to put in some type of evidence, that type of thing. Answer. Yes, sir. Question. Okay. If they didn't put on any type of evidence, would you then, after the state presented its case, would you find the defendant guilty because they had not presented any evidence? Answer. Of her being innocent? Question. Right. Answer. No, sir. Question. Okay. Answer. If they don't prove that she's innocent, she is. Evidently, she's guilty then, if they can't prove that she is innocent. End quote. That kind of dialogue goes on for a while. The defense attorney keeps explaining how the judicial system is supposed to work. The potential juror continues to reiterate some version of, but she has to be on trial for a reason, so they need to prove that she's innocent. To be clear, that particular juror is excluded from jury duty. However, I remind you that each side, prosecution and defense, is only allowed so many opportunities to excuse a juror, and in the end, they have to take whatever is left in the jury pool. The point to all of this is that I wanted to start with the pieces of the case which should be used to convict someone. The evidence. So, at the end of episode 3, we had gotten through most of the other hard or hardish evidence in the case, and we are now on to the blood evidence. If you watch any true crime forensic shows, or the fictional versions such as NCIS, CSI, so forth, 
you may have the impression of science as this immovable force that is truth. The squints use their scientific tools and a result pops up. Whatever that result is, fingerprint match, determination of a chemical composition, DNA, determination of what caused a particular pattern in the dirt at a crime scene, that result is sacrosanct and directly leads to determining not only what happened, but also who did it. The problem is that not all scientific determinations are, in fact, sacrosanct. And even if they are accurate, the interpretation of how that determination came to be at the crime scene is usually up for debate. You can, for instance, determine beyond a shadow of a doubt that the sticky purple substance on your iPhone 15 is great gum. That part, the part determining what the substance is, may be sacrosanct. Your conclusion about that gum may be that your little sister, fond of loudly chewing and popping grape gum to annoy you, had been playing with your phone and had gotten that gum on your phone. This may be the most likely option. You may even be correct in your assumptions. But what if you're not? What if, for instance, your mother had been unexpectedly watching the neighbor's kid for an hour? During that hour, your mother let said neighbor's child play in your sister's room while she was at school. And that neighbor's child found your sister's grape gum, chewed on it for a bit, and then decided she didn't like it, and threw the purple wad under the sofa, as children are wont to do. Now you dropped your phone before school, and it skidded under that same sofa. You, of course, don't even realize it's gone until you are at school. When you get home, you find the phone under the sofa, with grape gum stuck across the camera lens. I know this all sounds ridiculous. It's just gum and a phone. But are you willing to send your sister to death row with that kind of evidence? Because that is exactly the kind of thing that convicts people every single day. Confirmation bias and pattern recognition. Look it up, people. These things are very real and they make our legal system very scary. Why, you ask yourself, is she nattering on about grape gum and the death penalty. Because one, I am trying to put things in perspective, and two, because I cannot tell you about the blood evidence in this case without including the prosecution's experts and their testimony. In the case of the routiers, the evidence is not grape gum, it is blood. A lot of blood. There is a map drawn up for the trial marked States Exhibit 122 which shows where blood is found by each of the wounded, Darley, Devon, and Damon. Let's start with the TV room. The routiers called this room the Roman room. Why? This is never explained. Darley is asleep on one of the sofas in the Roman room. The boys are asleep on the floor with just blankets and pillows. Devon dies essentially in the position he was in when he fell asleep, down near the TV. His blood is marked on the map found in this spot. His blood slash DNA is also partially and weakly found in the kitchen sink. 
Damon dies right by the doorway, which acts as the entrance slash exit connecting the TV room and the short hallway to the front door. There is blood found in that spot. There is also a considerable blood pool that is also Damon's blood in the carpet in front of the sofa that Darley had been sleeping on. Damon's blood is also found in small quantities in the kitchen sink. Lastly, there is Darley, whose blood was found pretty much everywhere blood was found. All the walkways in the TV room, at the same locations where Damon and Devon's blood is located, in that Roman room, and in the kitchen sink and on the floor in the kitchen. Darley says that she is woken up by Damon. Remember, she's asleep on the sofa. Damon is tapping at her shoulder, saying, Mommy, Mommy. She looks up to see a dark-clad intruder, and she gets up to follow the man. Damon follows her, but she tells him to stop at the entrance to the kitchen, which he does. This entrance to the kitchen is just the side of where Damon's body was located. The prosecution says, and as far as I can tell, the first rendition of this version of the crime is given in the closing statements. Y'all know how I feel about that kind of shit. But the prosecution says that Darley actually begins stabbing Damon by the sofa. He crawls his way towards the TV room exit, towards the hall, towards the stairs, towards the help of his father who is up those stairs, where Darley catches up to him and finishes him off. Neither version of what happened is very believable on its face. The problems with Darley's version go like this. Problem 1. There is not a lot of blood on the sofa where she says she was sleeping. With her waking up and essentially chasing the intruder out of the house, she had to have been attacked before she awoke, correct? The assumption is that there should be a great deal of blood on the couch, her pillow, the blankets, the floor immediately in front of the sofa, something. What does exist on those things is on the opposite end of the sofa she said she had her head at. Then there are the problems of how do you sleep through your kids being stabbed in the same room you are in? How do you sleep through your own throat being slashed? How does your son speak to you with holes in his lungs? How could he get up and walk and follow you? The problems with the prosecution's version go like this. The prosecution states, again, in the closing arguments, that the blood trail proves their take on the crime. Where is this blood trail? Because it's not on the blood map. The blood map that the prosecution itself prepared. The blood map that came out at every opportunity at the trial. The only blood illustrated on that map, between the sofa and Damon's final resting place at the other side of the room, is Darley's. Damon's blood is by the sofa that Darley was sleeping on and by the wall. He could have levitated over there for all anyone knows, because there is no evidence of how he got from one place to the other. If, dear prosecutors, you are going to poo-poo Damon's ability to say anything and then also his ability to walk at all, let alone follow his mother, then you also have to have a problem with his crawling across the room to the doorway to the hall. I know it makes for a better visual when you are trying to convict someone for his murder that Damon was struggling to crawl his way across the room to his father, leaving a bloody trail behind him 
only to expire before he could make it to the stairs. It's the tragic climax to a crime action movie. You know, that final straw that makes the hero mad enough to go after the bad guys? But that's not what the evidence says happened here. There is no trail of Devin's blood, at least from what was presented. I also don't see anything in the crime scene photos, for whatever that's worth, using the photos available on the Darley Facts website. There is also a problem for the prosecution with Darley's blood on her pillowcase, on her pillow, on the sofa, and on the floor in front of the sofa, because the prosecution contends that Darley stabbed the boys and then went to the sink to cut her own throat. If that's the case, her blood shouldn't be on any of those things at all, just her t-shirt. The prosecution feels no reason to explain Darley's blood on any piece of fabric, and they are quick to point out that there is too little of her blood on the sofa or her pillow or blanket for her to have been assaulted while she was on the sofa. What they fail to explain is why her blood is on those items at all. The prosecution's blood pattern expert will talk about wicking when it comes time for him to testify, but not in the case of Darley lying on the sofa with all kinds of wicking agents all around her. What is this wicking of which you speak? Wicking, for those who don't know, is when a material soaks up a liquid. The wick in an oil lamp or candle does just that, thus its name. But many things can act as a wick even when they're not meant to. A wick made to be a wick will, generally speaking, absorb the fluid, fuel in the case of a fire, and it will absorb that fluid in an expected way. We have light and everything is fine. But if a fabric can soak up fluid, when it comes to contact with some fluid, it will absorb that fluid. This is also wicking. It's just not controlled, nor is it completely predictable. It's kind of the difference between a candle with an internal wick, which, if made correctly, will give you light, and dropping that candle in a patch of dry foliage, which is very likely to produce a highly destructive forest fire. Fire is not easy to predict, which can make it difficult to investigate. However, there are enough consistencies which allow fire investigators to figure out where a fire started, what path it took, and even what may have caused it. It's about understanding wicking. As with fire, one of the keys to understanding blood pattern analysis is understanding wicking. Darley's sleep shirt is a prime example of wicking. The t-shirt Darley had on has a lot of blood all over the front side of the shirt. The center three-quarters or more of the white nightshirt is a solid swath of red. Not so much on the back. Darley's neck wound is on the right side of her throat, extending at a bit of a downward angle across the top of her chest, almost to her armpit. And just to forestall the purists, the cut does not extend in one complete line. There is a gap about mid-chest, which the prosecution uses to suggest Darley hesitated when she tried to cut her own throat. The point at this juncture is that the cut is on the front of her body, so this matches up with the blood being on the front of her nightshirt. But, please explain for me 
the bloody left side of the t-shirt neck. This blood stain continues around the collar and down the back of her left shoulder, or the left nightshirt shoulder. The woman was bleeding from the right side and the front of her neck and chest. If she had been standing at the sink when she slit her own throat, if she were upright at all, there shouldn't really be any blood on the left side of her neck. Plus, it really looks like the path of blood would have taken if she were laying down, rolled at least partially onto her left side. The blood would bleed out of her right side wound, be pulled by gravity towards her left side, hit the t-shirt fabric, wick itself into the t-shirt fabric, and then continue to be pulled by gravity down the back of her shirt until it was stopped by the smooth surface of the couch, or the blood kind of pooled. In fact, depending on the quantity of blood that reached the surface of the sofa, there was no reason for there to be a lot of blood on the sofa itself. The smooth pleather was not the kind of surface that absorbs fluid. No wicking. This is why child mattresses have plastic covers over them. The sofa also had all sorts of objects to absorb the blood. Blanket, pillow, pillowcase, Darley's sleep shirt, even her hair would have been more absorbent than that sofa. We will talk more about Darley's t-shirt and its blood stains later, but for now I would like to just add, prosecution's blood stain expert, his name is Tom Bevel by the way, Tom Bevel spent a lot of time and the prosecution spent a bejesus amount of money on blood analysis of this t-shirt to pick and choose which stains they were going to explain and which they were going to ignore. Then there is the sink. There was blood on the front rim of the kitchen sink, lapped over the edge of the counter, and that is the counter into which the kitchen sink had been inserted by the home builders, and down the front of the cabinets. The sink itself was pretty clean. Darley's explanation for the state of the sink was that she had gone to the sink several times in order to wet towels and bring them back to the children. Let's be clear, these are kitchen towels, not bath towels. And it is this process of wetting and re-wetting the towels that caused the interior of the sink to look so clean. The prosecution said that Darley slit her own throat at the sink, then cleaned it up so that no one would know what had happened at that sink. They even used the suggestion at trial that the blood on the cabinet below the kitchen sink was there because Darley had opened the doors to access the cleaning products under that sink. The problem with this particular suggestion is that there was no blood under the sink or on any of the cleaning products. I have also to wonder why, if the point of cleaning the sink cleaning the sink was to hide that she had cut her own throat. Why would Darley think to clean the sink itself and not the counter around it or the cabinets underneath? I can see missing the bottom cabinets, but the counter? As an aside, assuming the prosecution was right, Darley was taking quite a chance cutting her own throat at the kitchen sink if she thought she was going to get a handle on that blood. Even without hitting her carotid or jugular, it was very likely she would have gotten blood all over the walls, upper cabinetry, the window above the sink, along with the kitchen sink itself. Sure, she may not have realized that, but the probability is there. 
Let me specify here that there really isn't that much blood around the sink. In light of the rest of the kitchen, there are some blood drips down the side of the lower cabinet doors, a smear on the front or the lip of the counter, a splotch on the front rim of the sink itself, and a splotch on the counter between the sink and the edge. If she did slit her own throat, she was lucky to not have made a bloody mess in that area, even with the cleaning. Also, why would you not go where there's a mirror? If you still wanted a sink, why not go to the bathroom? If cutting her own throat at the kitchen sink were the case, would you even find Darley's blood in quantity on the front of the counter? Give me a minute here. She stabs the boys. She may or may not have the boys' blood on her nightshirt. Believe it or not, you can stab another person multiple times and not get blood on yourself. But since she has not bled yet, there wouldn't be any of her own blood on that nightshirt. She goes to the sink and leans over so the sink can catch the blood. Her shirt is touching the front of the counter. If she has the boy's blood on her t-shirt at that point, it would have transferred onto the front rib of the counter. The blood tested there should show the boy's blood on the front of the counter. Only Darley's blood is found in that smear. None of this precludes her doing all this in the nude. This is the description of the sink given by forensic seriologist Catherine Long at trial. Quote, the actual basins appeared to be clear, but on closer inspection there was about seven stains that we could visually see that appeared to be, they were dried, but they appeared to be like washed out blood like someone had washed their hands or somehow blood had mixed with water in that sink and had actually dried in little spots in the sink, end quote. She doesn't say, it looks like someone had tried to clean up. She says, like someone had washed their hands. Or wet some towels? The last thing I'm going to mention today is the infamous sock. When the police did their search of the area around the Routier's home, they located a white athletic sock. It was three houses down the alley from the routiers sitting in the grass, almost on the curb, next to a wheelie trash bin and just above a storm drain. A white tube sock shining against their flashlights that appeared to have blood on it. A smattering? A daub? Because it's not like it was soaking in it. Sergeant Ward located it and Sergeant Main collected it. No one thought the kitchen knife planted in the neighbor's grass was weird, but this tube sock? Oy vey. So much has been made of that sock. On the side of the prosecution, the sock did turn out to be Darren's, and it had both Damon and Devin's blood on it. If it had turned out to be a neighbor's sock, or chicken blood, they would have just disregarded it. The prosecution says that Darley put it there to throw them off the scent, to point to an outside job. Darley's blood was not found on the sock, but her DNA was found on the inside. Aha! Poof! She touched it! The DNA means she was wearing it like a glove. Darley put on the sock, dipped it in blood from each of the boys, and then ran down the street to plant it next to the neighbor's trash. Because that seems plausible. Honestly, I don't completely get it. There was testimony from the routiers and their neighbors confirming that Damon and Devin were all over the neighborhood in their kid jeep, on their scooters, and, and bikes, and on foot. You're lucky you found just a sock, 
because who's to say that the boys didn't put it there days prior to the crime? Have none of you had boys? The sock wasn't soaked in blood, just little dabs. And the routiers say it was a lone sock which had been relocated to the rag pile. Sounds completely plausible to me. Rather than Darley having won the thing like a glove, she turned it right side out when doing the laundry. The sock rolling around in the rag pile lost any external DNA, but the protected interior DNA remained. The sock was found by a trash can and a sewer drain, suggesting the intruder was intending on getting rid of it, but in his hurry, missed the mark. The sock was by a trash can. Have you ever asked a boy to throw something away? Give me a reason to believe that Damon or Devin didn't go to throw this thing away two days ago and were just too lazy to do it properly. And how many other left out toys and discarded bits and bobs did the officers ignore, which they could also have picked up, but didn't? And to come back to the blood on the sock, let me just ask, what kind of blood was this and how old was it? Because no one ever did that kind of testing. In 1996, I'm not 100% sure they would have fully realized that they could do that. CODIS wasn't even established until 1998, a full year after Darley was sent to prison. If this sock was used to dab at some scrapes the boys got from falling off their bikes or from a nosebleed, this distinction has not been made. Regardless, the sock is not actually evidence of anything because it doesn't actually prove anything just complicates things. Darley killed Damon and Devin, or she didn't. Sock or no sock. The fact that the prosecution not only used this sock as evidence, but was also able to get away with using it as evidence, is mind-blowingly absurd. Sadly, I have used up all of our time today. But before I leave you, I want to bring this back around to evidence as sacrosanct, and how evidence is at the mercy of its interpreters. The morning of June 6, 1996, the Rowlett Police Department called in someone to advise them on the case. Rowlett was a generally safe area and they wanted someone with experience to ensure they got this investigation right. The man's name was James Cron, and he had 50-some-odd years in crime scene investigation. Those in the Darley's Innocent Camp really lay into this man for spending 20 minutes in the house and deciding that the scene had been staged. In their defense, I can see their point. There really isn't very long to determine such a critical set. However, the man has some serious credentials, and when you have been working as long as he had, it often doesn't take long to assess a situation. I will talk more about his testimony in the next episode, but just on what I've got now, James Cron was a decent, credible investigator who was just trying to solve a terrible crime. I think the problem with Kron's involvement was that his opinion was taken as gospel. Instead of using Kron's opinion as a starting point, investigating the crime, and then modifying the theory of the crime as evidence came in, the investigators took Kron's opinion and made the evidence fit their theory. And that, dear listener, is shit. Speaking of shit, Next time, we will continue our discussion of the blood evidence with the prosecution's expert, Tom Bevel, a man who made me want to throw things. If you like the podcast, like, 
rate, review, and subscribe. Contact information, as well as the Patreon, are in the show notes. I would love for a donation to the pod, but simply telling a friend or two is awesome as well. CG5 will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Oops, they done did it again. Another main dad misplaced his hand. Oh, who could it be? I mean, it definitely wasn't me. No clue where that charlatan ran. I've been around the scale, only know too well. Well, and vampires want fresh blood. So now everyone's sus. Are you crawling around?